Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Followers. Uh, this week, uh, episode 31, we have a very special uh, guest for you in Brian Hickey. Brian is, I suppose, uh, uh, known in a lot of uh, areas, but uh, he's most well known for uh, being a four-time champ of uh, NABA, uh, so Mr. Ireland, NABA, uh, Mr. Ireland, four-time champ, and for uh, being the country's top coach in uh, bodybuilding and uh, competition prep. So, Brian, Welcome. Um, I, I suppose to start off, maybe if you could give us a little bit of a background on yourself, um, what got you into uh, the line of work that you are in, and uh, yeah, just uh, your any general kind of background on yourself. Okay, so like most young lads, I grew up playing football and a few other sports, got into cross-country running, and that led on to doing triathlons. And I did that for a few years, represented Ireland a couple of times. And then I got into the whole gym game just by virtue of following friends. And like with everything that I do, I was always kind of an all or nothing kind of guy. So once I got into that, I said, I want to do a bodybuilding competition. And I kind of grew from there. Um, I was always a bit of a nerd. Even when I was doing the triathlons, I was big into reading about different methods of increasing endurance and, you know, lactic threshold lactate thresholds and vo2 max and stuff so that kind of followed all when i got into bodybuilding researching and uh, methods for building muscle um nutrition like everyone knows but you lift weights you eat protein you get bigger but i would try to delve a little bit further as to why that happened and i kind of spiraled into my learning for myself but then i did a couple of competitions and people started asking for diets and training programs so i was just doing it just for friends then random people started asking me, so I said, well, I'm not doing this for nothing. Like, it takes up a bit of time. So I started charging people, and they were willing to pay. And I said, Jesus, I can make a living out of this. So I was doing that, and through years of studying, trial and error on myself, and then with clients, I became, I suppose, better and more known in the industry. Decided I needed a bit more credibility under my belt, other than uh, being, all I was was NCF qualified at that time. So I did a degree in strength and conditioning coaching with Santa College. Um, don't really use that to a large degree in my line of work, but I do work with a few athletes, so it's something that I have there. More recently, I've gotten into the side of sports psychology then as well. I did a diploma during the first lockdown because I think that's possibly the missing link between success and failure for a lot of people, the mindset side of things. That's that's very interesting. Um, I, I, I It's fascinating, the, 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 the move from such an endurance type of lifestyle to um i suppose to just building building mass really they would you have found that there are many um links or um i suppose similarities between them other than maybe the dedication the discipline side of things probably the only thing it's funny because a lot of bodybuilders have gone the other way now as they've gotten on in their career and they got a bit older they've gone into running and triathlons results you did it the other way around but i was eating like a normal person doing 15, 20 hours of cardio a week. And then I stopped doing the cardio and started lifting five hours a week and eating lots lots of protein and healthier. So it was kind of a, a bit of a change, all right. So when you're kind of, Brian, you're mostly known for a prep coach. So that's that's how we know each other. You're my coach, obviously. When you come through, um, what do you think would make an excellent prep coach? Like, what do you think sets a prep coach across from just a normal coach? I suppose... Having a, a duty of care is one thing that I see it's missing. Like a lot of people out there, by hook or by crook, they'll get the before and after pictures. You know, they don't care how they go about it. Um, so I think that's one thing that's missing with a lot of coaches. Um, also, a lot of people haven't really been there and done that to the depths that I'd say some of the good coaches have. So yeah, the duty of care and then I suppose experience as well as the knowledge because I think everyone has a game plan until it stops working and then they don't know what to do. And then it's just, okay, eat less, do more cardio, eat less, do more cardio. And that's just a recipe for disaster, I think, at that stage. So I suppose a bit more experience and actually caring about the people that they work with. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. And it was really interesting to hear you say that you'd looked or you're kind of delving into the sports psychology side of things as well. Because I think from a prep conscious point of view, that's it's almost overlooked how important that is. Like even from my own experience, like most of the times I'd have a check-in with you, first five minutes we go through the numbers and that, and then the rest of the session will literally be just, how are you feeling, what's going on, is this that, and it's nearly just, it's someone else to chat through because you know, right, I know Brian has been through this, or he's going to know exactly how I feel, whereas if you talk to someone else, they're like, 
like you'd say, oh, okay, I'm kind of starting to lose, getting that dye face, the weight's loss off my face. And everyone else is like, why the hell would you want to lose weight off your face? And you're like, it's not the point. <laughs> it's not the point at all. But like, it's just having someone who's been through that and is able to, like, if I know if you told me, okay, you're going to have to dial, dial things back, you'll know it's coming from a place where either fail from experience or someone who knows what they're talking about as opposed to just like, no, I have to keep pushing through. It's just keep going until you can't anymore kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I think a lot of, a lot of, like you said, it ends up nearly being a council session. Like a lot of my clients 100%. are actually gen pop, hmm. you know, so they wouldn't be to the same kind of levels of dedication as that you or I would be. Hmm. So it's just kind of going through their lifestyles, you know, sitting there, listening to a guy or a girl complain about their spouse or their partner for hmm. 25 minutes, you know, hmm. or giving them like, like that, like you said, someone just to talk to me to chat about the football for 20 minutes and then do 10 minutes of measurements and deciding what changes we need to make. So it's almost like the, the psychology side of things and the mindset is as big a factor as getting the diet and the training program right. Perfect. And I know, so this will kind of vary from person to person, but what do you think is kind of the minimum time that you need to prep for a show or kind of advising people? Depends on our starting points. Like I always tell people, how long do I need to get ready for this show? So it depends on fat you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, a lot depends on their starting points, their experience. I generally <clears throat> like to do slightly longer preps for a couple of reasons, especially if I'm starting with someone new. I don't know how the metabolism is going to respond. So it could take four, five, six, eight weeks before we get a hang of their metabolism. Um, and secondly, if you give yourself a set time frame and then something goes wrong, you get sick for a week, you can't train or whatever happens. If you've left it too short, you've no time to pull it back. So I'd rather, plus, most people don't like to suffer too much too soon. So we're either going to gently ease into it. Yeah, it's nice in that because obviously like there will be an element of suffering no matter how well you do your prep. But like at some stage you're going to have that suffering thing. So it's so important, especially with new people, to kind of ease them in. So like it's the longer the better. Like we've had some preps. Even when I first came in, I think my first prep was like 25 weeks. And it was like it ended up being not handy, but like much easier than I thought it would be just because we'd had that lo- that length of time. And obviously I was probably so fat. Like the start would have been kind of ma- maintaining or increasing calories to make a stabilization point. And then you're only probably dieting for maybe 16 weeks. So when people hear the fact that I say prep for 20 or 24 weeks, we get this kind of shock factor. I was like, it's prep, but all it really is doing is stopping being a dickhead and eating shit and drinking at the weekends and eating like a, a lifestyle bodybuilder. And with that, with with your kind of with the diet, do you have you much experience with people coming with maybe an agenda on what they are willing to have in their diet? Say maybe um, they have a dietary preference. Like uh, if we look at say uh, what I would be dealing with in sports nutrition, I've athletes coming to me saying, "Hey, what's the story with the ketogenic diet? What's the story with being a vegan? What's the story with you know X Y Z? Whatever diet you can imagine." Have you kind of I suppose some I suppose non-negotiables in that regard or uh, do you find um, how do you find it? I generally try to be quite flexible um, I won't coach vegans <laughs> basically <laughs> because I don't have the skill set I don't consider myself proficient enough in the knowledge of how to do it so I just don't touch them uh, vegetarians if they'll make an allowance with maybe fish or eggs or dairy it depends you know we can walk i've worked with a few vegetarians um i've actually prepped a few vegetarians so we can do that as long as a couple of allowances but generally um saying i'll back this up i'm i'm quite flexible in my diets in that like i actually have one of the forms here and one of the one of the questions on a little questionnaire i go through foods that are disliked and then food preferences so the more preferences that someone has the more mm-hmm. options i can make available for different meal times and they, they're not red, too regimented. It's a flexible way of kind of mixing and matching foods that suit them. So I always try to accommodate the individual. Because at the end of the day, the best diet is going to be one that they can stick to, that's sustainable. Do they all end up becoming reasonably similar? Like, do a lot of clients just come to you and you're like, you know, you're the exact same as the last five people. You want to include mainly chicken, a little bit of beef and salmon once a week, or is there a huge variation there? And like, hey, like, what meat you like? Oh, most meats. And it's rice, potatoes, pasta, oats, bagels, and the carb sources. The fat sources are where I see the most variants. Some people don't like avocados. Some people don't eat nuts, um, etc. So some people 
maybe a bit of red meat. Some people aren't mad on red meat. So, but other than that, like chickens, chickens only a certain amount of foods that we can kind of get our hands on. So, yeah, most of them would be very, very, very similar. And you kind of touched on it there, saying when, when you're with someone first, it's often a case of just cutting out the bullshit or the stupid stuff. But when someone comes to you first, are you looking for them to maybe add a little bit of muscle first or just get straight into the, the habit of dropping a bit of fat first and then see where your kind of baseline is? Or do you, does it depend completely on the individual? Completely on the individual. Nine times out of ten, though, I'm trying to recomp because they're probably not doing things properly. So just by giving them a structure, with more protein and a better combination of, of carbohydrates and fats, they will get leaner without actually being in a deficit, if you like, without trying to get leaner. And they'll probably add a little bit more tissue, a little bit more fullness. And then we decide, right, where do we go from here? And if they're looking to get ready for a competition, they then go into the cut. But the initial phase could be anywhere from four to ten weeks, just stabilizing things. Just for anyone listening, sorry, is that like recomp is where you can put on a little bit of muscle and drop fat at the same time and will be largely only for beginners or people new to that kind of area? See, yeah, beginners, yes. But again, a lot of people, even more advanced lifters, most people are quite novice in their nutrition. So it works for a large majority of people that I'd see because they're coming from a very um, non-optimal nutrition standpoint. Most of them are under-eating. Especially with the girls. I can I can tell when a girl walks into me, 99 times out of 100, they're not eating enough before they even open up. And what are some of the telltale signs of that? Would it be like, they'd just be talking a lot about fatigue, you'd maybe see it, or they tend to have cravings a couple of times a week? Just, a lot of them think they're eating healthy. I've started eating healthy. And today I'm eating healthy means a chicken breast and a lettuce leaf. And then an apple and a protein shake. And that's probably all they've had. Oh, when I snack a couple of crackers with peanut butter, mm. maybe seven, eight hundred calories a day. You know, it's just by talking to them, I can just get the vibe. Mm-hmm. So I was able to read people quite well after being in the game so long. And just last point there on prep. When someone like does, and Shane said he was 25 weeks at the start, or someone have a 16-week block, but when they peak and say peak for a show... How long, say if there's a couple of shows maybe coming up together or two weeks apart, what's the kind of longest peak they could have that they could include a show here, maybe a photo shoot and another show? Or again, I, I assume there's obviously individual differences there, but what's kind of what's what you've pushed it and what you'd maybe recommend someone to aim for? Two to three weeks is uh, probably the longest time frame, realistically. And it's maybe not even a physical thing. It's a psychological thing because... Once they have a day or two off after the diet uh, and the prep, they can mentally struggle to get back on track a lot of the time. So if they know they have maybe two shows a week apart or maybe two weeks apart, it's easy. But if the show goes on before they left, they can mentally struggle to uh, stay on track. And a little bits of binging and stuff come in and picking. I feel with that, you have to like, there's always still going to be one show that's priority. And the others are either either practices or just something that happens to be around the same time. There always has to be like one sole goal. Because I think if you go into it and you're like, right, these are the three I have to peak for, it's never going to work. Because you're just ne- never going to be able to facilitate something like that. So it has to be, fair enough, you can do three shows in that three-week period, but there has to be one, like one trophy that you're working towards. And the others are just, if they go well, it's a bonus. If not, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I'd always prioritize one show, maybe two. One of the hardest things is, prepping someone and it's a qualifier for an international event that yeah. could be four or five weeks after I've been there myself and I found it quite difficult more difficult mentally yeah. I've actually tried to bridge <clears throat> between shows myself and even me mentally I wasn't able to do it because maybe because I wasn't fully committed at the start yeah. but it's, it's hard to kind of mentally just push yourself once you get the, the nice food back in and the pumps start getting good again yeah. It's kind of weird how good that you say that because the, the way the bodybuilding season is structured in Ireland, like people probably won't notice it, but there's kind of, there's the April, May season and then into like October season. So it means you kind of have to choose your season because anyone who wants to do both kind of finds himself in that middle period then where you have the summer and you're doing nothing, like you're not fat enough to do a full prep and then you're not, you can't just keep going because you'll just, you'll emaciate like and keep going away. So you have a middle period where you're like, right, I have to just not eat nice food but eat a lot of, and you're kind of just in this weird in-between phase, so it's hard to kind of run up and then peak again. 
I find bikini girls can do that better than mm. guys. Reason being why and this isn't a sexist thing. <laughs> it's um, if you do a spring show and I try to go on to the autumn shows, mm. you're not going to look any different. You're not going to add any appreciable amount of muscle mm. between your reverse diet and going back into prep. It's maybe six, eight weeks. Um, whereas bikini girls, they don't need a huge amount of muscle, so you can make some small refinements, and they would be generally working within a kind of a smaller caloric kind of spectrum. Yeah. So it's easier to for them adding three, four hundred calories to bring them into where they're stuffed, mm. you know, and then you just have to wean them back out. And is that largely a case of they're just generally smaller people in stature? So the kind of the wiggle room and the amount of calories up or down to create a deficit or a surplus is just that bit smaller. That's exactly it. Yeah, they've less muscle mass. Um obviously hormonally females are a lot different to guys. Um like most girls would be doing well to be eating 2,000 calories a day and actually consistently eating 2,000 calories a day. Um, realistically, they have to drop quite low, um, closer to the 1,000 to really get stage lean. Now, bikini girls, maybe not so much. Not the advanced bikini girls because their metabolism would be a little bit more active. But your average girl that's coming doing her first or second bikini show, they wouldn't have a lot of wiggle room and generally they'd have to walk that a little bit harder than the girls are looking up to. That would be at the top level. And like, just in general there, some of the male-female differences, say, even at the outset or, or going forward into prep, what are some of the big considerations you have to keep in mind when working with a male or a female? Um, obviously, hormones is obviously a big one. And then just general metabolism. Like, men have a lot more metabolic flexibility. As in, they can, for example, if your uh, maintenance is 3,000 calories a day, as a man, and a woman's, let's say, it's 1,600. You go out for dinner, you get a slice of cake, 700 calories. So a guy, he can still eat 2,300 calories on top of that piece of cake, but a poor guy has half more calories in a day, pretty much. So that's the big thing. Mm. Um, you, uh, Brian, a, a lot of people, or people come to you to prep for, uh, for shows and to, to uh, get into competition, and a, a big part of that is... Um, Obviously, it, it, the main part of it is their physique, how they look uh, when they get on stage. How have you found, I suppose, the aftercare um, of people getting to that point where they're the leanest, they're the, the most vascular, the muscular uh, that, uh, that they've, they've ever been, and then they sit back or they take their off-season or whatever it, it is for the, the following few weeks. I've come across, uh, I suppose, largely online people talking about, you know, struggling with that from, um, uh, I suppose, a mental health perspective that they're not able to get as lean or they're not as lean as they were. Have you had much experience with the aftercare with, with that? Yeah, a lot. Um, a lot of the girls that can't come to me would have done preps before and have been left in bits uh, physically, psychologically. Um, when I tell when I get a girl come to me, especially for her fourth show, one of the first things I'll always tell them is, I'd rather put you on stage at 80% of your potential. You may not place, you may come last, but you'll walk out without saying, you know what, I enjoyed that and I'm still healthy. Rather than pushing them all the way to get second or third place, mm -hmm. with a poxy little trophy, but they say, that was horrific, I never want to do that again. Mm -hmm. So I might take them two, three, four shows to get to their potential, but at least they're staying healthy physically and psychologically throughout it. Mm -hmm. And do you find that more common in females than with males to have the the, the long-term post-show impact yeah, than definitely. males? Um, men are more, I suppose, hormonally robust, that they bounce back hormonally a lot quicker than females can do. Um, now, with women, amenorrhea and kind of losing their periods, it's, it's standard enough for any athlete performing at an elite level, from cross-country runners swimmers, gymnasts, and obviously bikini athletes. But you get it a lot in the general population now because they're following these kind of online tr uh, trends and fads where they're starving themselves and they're doing six, eight cardio sessions a week, lifting and all this on like 800 calories a day. The body can only handle so much. <clears throat> I think men bounce back a lot quicker. I'm, I'm quite uh, meticulous in reverse diets for people. Um, if they've done a show... Within two or three days, max, I'm just letting them kind of mentally relax. I'll have the reverse plans in place. These two arise where most of them don't follow it. 
but I put the package in place. That's something that I'm very kind of cognitive of. Mm. Um, because I want to see them be able to reverse it properly. And then they're in a better position when they do go to prep again. They'll be beginning their next prep leaner than they did their last prep on higher calories and just in metabolically more flexible position. Just two points to build on there in that when you say reverse diet, that's like they've dieted down into the show. It's reverse diet where you're setting what they eat to slowly build back up calories afterwards. Yeah, so basically their input has gone down gradually and their output has gone up gradually. As the body adapts, obviously we need to keep making progressions to keep the body moving. Um, and it's just reversing that model. And again, how we reverse it really depends on the person. Um, sometimes I'll literally go back to the diet, the amount of calories they started their prep on, because that was a deficit for them at that point. Now granted, 20 weeks later, that may now with the, uh, the I suppose the hormonal and uh, metabolic adaptation, adaptation, they may uh, it may be a surplus now, but it'll only be a small surplus because initially it was a deficit. So I may go back to that. Then again, I may keep them on the prep, but allow them one free meal per night as a way to bring things back up and add a bit of normality. So again, it depends on the individual, and that's something that I try to gauge from dealing with them. And just you touched on it there as well, that a lot of females tend to lose their, their menstrual cycle or their period when towards the end of prep and often happens in other sports. Is that purely a case of because there isn't the calories there to deal with the potential of, um, I suppose, have, having a child and that because it's not there that you're not going to get into a state where you could possibly have another child because there literally isn't a the fuel there to provide for them inside your body? Yeah, it's the bigger, the growing gap in uh, the, the calories uh, in and out, you know, as it extends, the body goes through a state of stress. Um, and the way I look at it is periods for women and erections for men. They're made for, they're for procreation. That's their physiological perspective. Um, so they're not essential. When your body's going to the depths of prep, it's into like survival mode. So, okay, we don't, we don't need to worry about making babies here. You know, so... <clears throat> we can just stop these functions. That's why women will lose their periods and you'll talk about men losing their libido. The deeper they get into prep then as well. That can happen for periods of time, but you don't want it to happen in the long term, really. You want to build that back up so, so oh, it comes absolutely, back again. Oh, absolutely, of course. Like, girls will come to me, for example, they may have done a prep previously and I've done this loads of times. They've come to me and I was like, okay, how's, and one of the questions I ask them is, how's that period? Well, with men, I ask about their sex drive. Women, I ask about their menstrual cycle. And if I hasn't come back from that last show, I would not allow them to go into a prep until their period comes back at least once. Now, at the end of the day, all I can do is advise. Mm. It comes down to their own kind of choice at the end of the day. But I would always make the the assumption that they shouldn't go back into another prep until they balance off hormonally. I think you find, like with a lot of bikini competitors, after their first, I suppose, the best bikini competitors anyway that I know, they generally had maybe a poor enough first prep where like either they didn't do it properly but it wasn't wasn't great and the outcome wasn't what they wanted but then after a proper reverse diet it means that they're starting at a much better place they're probably starting closer to their maintenance than they were before whereas before they could have been starting 400 calories in deficit and that means there's so much more weapons then to use in the prep and it means then that next one maybe they'll lose their period a couple of months later in the prep than they would have before and then again the next one they don't lose it all and it keeps building like that and i feel you see that with a lot of the best bikini competitors they just keep growing and growing in kind of their ability and their uh, performance just purely because they know a little bit more about what they're doing or their coach just has so much more weapons to play with that's exactly that weapons you're talking about is what i call metabolic flexibility you know their their maintenance increases as they add muscle tissue train properly and it's just something that develops over time like for example, right now, I can probably eat three and a half thousand calories a day. People slag me because I'm always putting pictures on my Instagram story of curries and chocolate. And I say, like, how the fuck are you so lean? Well, when your maintenance is three and a half, four thousand calories a day, you have a lot of wiggle room. I used to like maintain on two and a half thousand calories. So my diet had to be quite rigid. I remember my early preps, I dieted on sixteen hundred calories a day, double cardio sessions. Now it worked, but it was fucking horrific. <laughs> So, I mean, that's even something we would look at, I know, when I was doing it, but you're kind of trying to make the slightest adjustment each kind of check-in. 
just so we always have those weapons when we we want to make the smallest adjustment that's going to make a difference to your calorie intake so it means we can i think my last prep we started on 3200 calories and we didn't really change calories for about six to eight weeks just because we kind of gradually increased cardio and it was just we did whatever we could to not reduce calories because i just didn't want to but you, you just have that flexibility when you've done it a few times or like you have those other weapons to use yeah exactly just there in terms of in terms of the long-term prep like i know so little about bodybuilding i'm intrigued by a lot of this but when someone starts gets into like a a reasonably solid structure for 16 weeks what's some of the potential weight loss figures you're going to see there I, I talk about this for maybe male versus female the one thing it's going to sound harsh people are fatter than they think they are so that's why another reason why i suggest slightly longer preps but you're looking at maybe a pound or one percent body fat per week so say i have a guy comes to me your average guy starting it's probably 20 percent body fat so i was like <coughs> 20 weeks one week for every percent body fat that you have is a realistic time frame and it does give you a little bit of wiggle room then as well because when you step on stage then like realistically what like obviously you don't measure it with decks around but what kind of body fat percent are you stage-wise like decent competitor i'd say in around a five percent mark yeah i obviously um shane i base a lot of what i do off skin faults so i know what how low certain skin falls need to be for um the stage look if you like so i base it off that rather than actual percentages because like, i'm sure you know you can get four different calculators put the figures in and get four totally different body fat results yeah i get that kind of i suppose in the latter terms of prep people are like so what percentage body fat are you and you're like i honestly i don't have a clue like it's not something i measure and people are baffled they're like but you're not you're not tracking it's like oh, i'm tracking it like i have I can give you centimeter measurements for every part of my body, but like I just don't have a clue about what percentage mark you want me to give. And the amount of percentage itself doesn't really matter. Exactly. You know, it's it's it's, and that's the thing. Bodybuilding is in a sports of illusion, mm. so you could look leaner. Like I know lads out there whose skin folds would be very very low, but they wouldn't look that lean compared to guys who have higher actual higher body fat. Just whatever way the muscle and the skin tone and so many other factors involved in it. Mm. Um, Brian, you you mentioned just about um, uh, I suppose your uh, people at home who who maybe uh, see the results that uh, these bikini uh, girls or people on stage that that they kind of achieve and they're looking at okay they're doing these uh, these type of training so let's jump into it but I I suppose I'd like to know maybe your thoughts or opinions on um, I suppose the the prescriptive nature of uh, diets that that you do for people who are athletes people who are competing but that being taken into i suppose the everyday person world and being used as a kind of a tool to get you know just your everyday joe soap who's looking to maybe get a bit fitter you know get a bit more um uh, i suppose structure to their diet and that and they go to maybe a personal trainer or someone and they're given this meal plan calories everything measured weighed out everything to that detail have you any thoughts on that from a lay public perspective because i, I look at that and see it as something that is uh, is necessary for sport but from a lay person perspective i'm just wondering have you any thoughts on on that or experience with that yeah because the way i look at it the, the physiological process of fat loss and building muscle which is pretty much what everyone's do from your gym pop to your stage at least the physiological process is the exact same regarding eating foods that will have you in a slight deficit, exercise in a certain way, and controlling hormonal factors. So I would treat gen pop people very, very similar as I would to competition athletes. But what I would do is, again, based on the initial questionnaire, where I find out what foods they like, I will give two, three, four options for breakfast, lunch, dinner, depending on their lifestyle, um, will dictate whether they have three meals, four meals, five meals. Some girls have six meals. You know, but again, that's only after time. I generally use four meals for a girl as a baseline. And the reason why is that if they're only eating twice a day, long gaps in the day, they're going to pick, they're going to snack. And there's, there's, there's no cognizance regarding the amount of calories they're putting in. They're having this here, that there. Where if you're eating four solid meals a day, the want or the need to snack in between is not there. And it adds more control. Plus it also ensures they're getting enough protein in their diet. That's one thing a lot of females do is under-eat protein. And when they're looking to obviously 
alter body composition at the major components of what they should be having because I think women got too obsessed with weight loss but we're obviously looking for fat loss so we want to maintain mm-hmm. protein so they can maintain muscle or at least or even build muscle what are some of the kind of common fallacies or traps people fall into when they are losing weight but not the fat they wanted that you might have seen in the past? Um, I suppose the biggest one is uh, eating less is better. You know, it's it's fat loss. I suppose every, every kind of uh, factor of fitness, it's not, never a linear process. So you could be doing all the right things. Nothing's changing what we're doing wrong. Be patient. Then all of a sudden, the changes start to manifest in physical appearance or performance. And is that sometimes the case of like your body was possibly holding on to a bit of water and like it maybe starts to go after a bit of extra exercise? Or is it sometimes by by sticking to a process for a period of time, you realize there's one or two things you have been doing that are not suitable for helping you drop fat that you just didn't realize. And now that you've become more aware of the stuff surrounding that, you're like, oh, this this massive latte I was having every day, this might be having a negative impact here. Yeah, possibly both. Both of those factors could definitely have some sort of a role to play. And then obviously with everything that you're doing to your body, people say, why have I not lost weight this week? I did everything perfect. They don't understand that all the chemical cellular changes that are happening deep inside the body, they don't manifest directly after one clean meal or one good day's eating. These kind of cellular changes happen over time. And they may not become noticeable in physique or appearance or even performance till two, three weeks down the road. Now, sometimes you will notice weekly changes, but sometimes it takes two or three weeks to actually see the work that you've been doing. Like the work you did three weeks ago may only be manifesting itself in the physique now. Can we touch, going back to bodybuilding there, Brian? So obviously the one kind of major difference, I suppose, in bodybuilding and other sports is the fact that drug use is kind of not can't think of the word but like it's very commonplace do you have much of a difference in when you're coaching someone who is maybe enhanced versus someone who's not is there many things that you would take into into account actually before we get into that just for people listening who maybe might not understand or know the bodybuilding scene in ireland how many federations are there in ireland and how how many are tested versus untested so so just so we have a general idea of how many many federations is there now Jeez, I've lost count. 65 million. <laughs> there was NABA and RABBF. Then you have PCA now. Um, the NBFI is the only the only tested federation. But then you also have the likes of the show Shane did, which are none of them. You have your Miami Pro and what were the other ones there? WBFF. WBFF. And now what's these other new ones that you have? There are muscle model type shows that have appeared over the last year or two. Oh. Is it elite something? There's an elite physique one, and then there's muscle something else as well. But there's, yeah, there's federations coming out of the woodwork every now. It's just kind of, it's saturating itself. You know, I don't know why they're doing these other federations. Like, I think we had this with you. You were doing the WFF, obviously, or WBFF, because uh, I had to kind of show you are looking to do with the muscle model the fitness model and i was like you're on a yeah. fucking orange stage do yeah. the men's physique or do whatever who are you trying to dodge you know so that you, you can pitch yourself against the, the most irish bodybuilders will do it and or the rdbbf i said now you have pca has come through as well and then the nbfi is the test of federation all yours aren't okay so then shane was asking what are some of the considerations you've taken in for someone who is going into a tested competition versus an untested one um to be honest with you i don't prep people any differently i just make sure the people who are not taking anything are aware they're probably going to have to work harder to get the same kind of results because they don't have the performance enhancing drugs to do that extra bit for them but other than that, again, the physiological processes are the same. Like, say I'm prepping someone and they get to a point where their body fat is stagnant, around, say, 2,000 calories a day, and they're doing five cardio sessions a week on top of their training. couple of options. If they're natural, they're going to have to drop calories or increase cardio or calorie output. But if they're taking performance-enhancing drugs, the fat burners they can throw in, that will bring them further to that deficit. The process is the same, just those extra tools um when you're enhanced 
And in terms of like the calorie intake, will that generally be lower for those who are untested or does it really make much of a difference? Not necessarily. Again, it comes down to individual kind of uh, biochemistry and metabolism. Like I have a lot of guys who would be enhanced and they have to go quite low on calories, even with the drugs. And then I have natural athletes who can get by on almost 3,000 calories a day. Genetically um, superior. And that's the, one thing about, uh, that's the one thing about this sport. Genetics rules all. Simple as that. And like the genetics and substances combined can they potentially make more of a difference in the off season when you're looking to bulk and put on a bit of muscle mass as opposed to when you're cutting down or getting into I think yes because you have the calories to support growth but again those who are genetically superior they could be on poverty calories throw in some drugs and get you it's just it's a very very unfair world and an unfair sport <laughs> but it is what it is and come to on stage then if you were to look at tested versus untested like competition day will one generally be that bit bigger than the other based on a couple of years of cycles extra calories the enhancement of the substances all like that or will they ultimately end up reasonably similar no the the non-tested enhanced athletes would walk all over the tested athletes as a rule now there's exceptions to every rule but as a rule there's no comparison and that's why the, the drugs are banned in sports because they work it's as simple as that but then for the guys who are choosing to go down the enhanced route a lot comes down to how far are they willing to push the boat you know I'm seeing some crazy crazy stuff out there that I was like you're gonna you won't be in this sport when the time you're 30 you'll be gone because they're just doing so much and so intense that they're just physically and mentally just born out and is it something that longevity, I'm going to assume it is, because like the more years you have in the gym, the more muscle mass you're going to have, plus the more experience you have of doing prep season after season, just the better you get at it. Whereas like age will come into like hurling, football, soccer, rugby, because like as you get older, you just lose that that pep, that speed, that power. Whereas bodybuilding, possibly not so much bar like other life factors, you know, having children, more stress at work and stuff. Otherwise, it's probably going to be a benefit being that bit older. Yeah, you see, most sports, you hit your 30s, your career's coming to its end. You hit your 30s in bodybuilding, you're only starting. Like mid, late 30s, early 40s even. There's hope for me, yeah. That's absolutely. So what are you now, 23, 24? <laughs> 30. <laughs> no, skin of a 20-year-old. <laughs> but yeah, I suppose the main, the main thing I think about when I think about like the enhancement, I think it depends on the class that you're entering. So say, for example, if you're a bikini model or on the men's side, if you're doing physique or even muscle model to an extent, you can compete because you don't have to necessarily be as big as humanly possible to compete or to get by. It's just going to, you're going to have to work that bit harder. Yes, granted, but if you're in a position to do so, you're, there's no reason you can't compete to at least maybe, okay, at the end of the day, maybe top podium positions are going to come down to those who are enhanced, but you can compete for the most part as a non-enhanced athlete. But I think when you go to, when you go to the open classes, that's when you're going to struggle because as good as your genetics are you're probably not going to be able to compete with someone who's who's fully enhanced at that level oh most definitely 100 mm. the smaller the, the class and the amount of muscle mass like you said men's physique and bikini you can do them completely natural and do quite well mm. i have coached numerous females um who have won irish bikini titles completely natural completely natural mm. um just three or four i can think of off the top of my head um again They've responded very well to the protocols of training and nutrition and obviously just superior genetics in that degree. But the less muscle mass you need, the better chance you have of doing it without having to take anything. And in terms of male versus female, do you know as much of a difference between willingness or even eagerness to take drugs to, to go along with PrEP or is it more one or the other? I suppose generally men are more open to taking the drugs. But I've seen a bit of a scary switch over the last few years where girls are willing to do things and even bikini girls. Like, I would point blank refuse to allow a bikini girl 
to take drugs because you don't need steroids. You need two more years, look. Simple as that. Now, if I look at the step up and progress to figure or physique, then it's a conversation we can have. But again, I'd always try and be quite responsible. I've worked with a few girls who came to me and they've already taken drugs. And I say, okay, we were taking too much. So we'll, reduce, we'll, we'll go with it, but you'll reduce our dosage. Because there's a lot of diminishing returns and there's only so much you can get from something. I'd be a minimalist at heart with regards to how many calories we're going to cut out, how much cardio we're going to do, how much drugs you need to take. I try and get the most from the least. I suppose it's interesting there you said and it's another two years you need i think that's a big problem with males as well like there's so many now there's kids who are 17 18 19 who have already started something or dabbled into a cycle and like more often than not they don't really know what they're doing first off but like they're nowhere near their genetic potential like they've probably only been training a couple of years they have no there's no need for them to do it now they're probably not even getting that much from the steroids in terms of what they'd naturally yeah. be able to do from just a training point of view so do you do you have much experience with things like that and just yeah, I've also refused to coach guys um, who want to take drugs um, until they're 21. I will not I will not coach a junior athlete or a guy under 21 who wants to use drugs. It's as simple as that. Actually, a friend of ours, Shane, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, he came to me a couple of years ago, a good few years ago now, and he'd been taking drugs. And I said, I'm not coaching you until you stop taking drugs. He came back to me 10 months later, and he could see he'd lost a bit of size, his skin had cleared up. Okay. Now we can prep and we, we do things a little bit more sensibly. He went on to become one of the best bodybuilders the country said. And pushing on from that, then it's just do you think there's much of it? I'll say for that off season, for kind of strength building purposes, is there much more to programming for that enhanced athlete? Would there be much more of a workload you could put on them, or is it still very much look at the same? No, obviously, the recovery will be a lot, a lot quicker. Recovery is enhanced, that's what the drugs do. You know, they just basically speed up recovery, the rate of recovery. You can train more frequently. Um, and obviously you metabolize food slightly differently then as well you'll utilize food in a better way obviously it improves protein synthesis um, they'll improve kind of insulin sensitivity etc and then for I suppose in bodybuilding in general do you think there's kind of because I kind of have a feeling that there's kind of a big change coming just in terms of what's kind of marketable so I suppose this classic physique is kind of just getting going as a position but I feel it has the potential to just take over. Like there's obviously, there's always going to be a market for the open class. Like there's always going to be people who want to see someone get as big as humanly possible. But I just think, especially in kind of an Instagram era, that kind of classic physique could just take over and dominate the whole scene. It already has, I think, because it's more aesthetic. It's more realistically achievable. Um, Plus, when it comes to Irish bodybuilders, we have no product and blessing. We've no real bodybuilding pros, hmm. but enter the classic category. We have four or five now because without classic, these guys who are classic pros would never become pro bodybuilders. They wouldn't hmm. have had just the genetic potential. Um, but classic has given them a forum and to kind of excel and actually make it as a professional. Yeah, It even kind of opens up the floor to ex-professional athletes from other sports. Like you'd have many say ex-rugby players and stuff who could come in then who would have a solid muscle base who continue who want to keep a competitive spirit going but i feel they could like they could flourish in a classic physique here where they're never going to want to touch on the open yeah that's quite possible because obviously they've wasted if you like 10 years playing rugby (laughs) without and not building mass they're Mm. never really going to make that ground up once they retire from rugby especially Mm. if it's like their early 30s to be Mm. making proper open bodybuilders but the classic does open up a whole new world definitely definitely when you said they're the open class versus the classic look, what's the difference there? Or what are some examples of either okay. or? Open bodybuilding is basically bodybuilding as the world knows it. The big, huge, massive, ripped lads get as big and as ripped as possible. That's open. Phil Heath, Ronnie Coleman, these lads. Yes. There's no limits on size or anything like that. Then classic bodybuilding was brought in. Um, they're looking for a more streamlined, a more aesthetic look, but more to the point of the height-to-weight ratio. There's a height to weight ratio that you have to fall into to be a classic bodybuilder. Yeah, so classic bodybuilding is trying to bring it back to, I suppose, Schwarzenegger era type look, where they want yeah. that kind of a bodybuilder. So they want, yeah, more aesthetically pleasing than than just all out mass. Yeah, exactly. And again, to be honest with you, a lot of it comes down to money as well. Like they're going with the small mainstream. 
it'll be more popular. It'll bring mm. more revenue in, more interest, more bums and seats at shows. Mm. So a lot of it does come down to just the financial gain for the organisers as well. Trying yeah. to break from being, I suppose, like a niche to more mainstream. And especially at the top, top, like there's no, there's no Arnold, there's no Ronnie, there's no Phil at the moment. There's no someone dominating it who has kind of a personality who can carry it off a bit. It's yeah. kind of a bit of a rigmarole now. There's someone from the classic can take that title as it were. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and the best thing is that it's given Irish athletes a platform to progress mm-hmm to that elite level. Definitely. And I'd say even, whatever about Irish athletes, I'd say British athletes, given their depth, could really make a run at the Olympia and like really make stars in the world. The bodybuilding world. Yeah, anyway. again, yeah but like, I think, I don't really follow it that closely, but I think the, the Americans pretty much ruined the roots. Yeah, fair. So, yeah. Uh, but it also, you know, it also allows, obviously you also have the two twelve two hundred twelve pound put off division, which is, a step below the open, it's above classic, but below open. Some of them, the guys who necessarily didn't make it at 212, have downsized a little bit to make the uh, the classic category as well. So it's, it's opened up a lot of avenues for a lot of people. When you say 212 pound air, that's a weight limit on how heavy you can be stepping on stage, is it? Yeah. So some of those could be walking around, say, like three months out, quite a bit heavier, but when they cut down, it's be below. What's that around 90, 96 kg? Is it You're like look at Conor McGregor? He weighed in at what 140, was it or 145 in his early fight? He was 20 pounds heavier a day later when he got in the ring because he'd rehydrated and all of that, but similar. Hmm. From that, actually, I suppose that's a good segue into your kind of your peak week, as we call it. So it'll be the week before a show when you're coming into a bodybuilding show. I suppose I'm nearly fishing for some of the horror stories, but have you heard of people getting that like very wrong? I think it's I think it's drastically over exaggerated in people's heads who haven't done it. How much of an effect that makes? I think it's kind of like it's the last two three percent in our head, unless you obviously have a weight to make. Then obviously it can be it can be huge, which is for overall for the effect it can have on your physique. It can, yeah, it can you can basically fuck up twenty weeks work in the last three or four days. It generally comes down to people thinking that there's a magic trick. And he do something completely drastic that they haven't done all prep. I'm like, oh shit, that didn't work. Back for it. And instead of making you five percent better, it's made you twenty percent worse. That's the that's the fine line. Like by getting the peak week right, um, the majority of people will improve the physique by three, four, five percent. You know, but if you get it wrong, it can destroy twenty weeks' work. Literally in the space of a couple of days, with water manipulations and just either spilling over which means obviously you start retaining water and give your muscles a much more blurry look or else they push it too far and the muscles become flat and depleted and they just can't fill back out to have that big full round look on stage they're generally one of the two things yeah and it's crazy how much i suppose variance there is like if you go backstage to bodybuilding show there'll be 20 bodybuilders roughly the same size and weight doing 20 very different things as part of their like like i've seen people eat bowls of dry oats or trying to eat bowls of dry oats and just you see the craziest things for people to try and get carbs in and it's just yeah again it's like you're doing so much for that two percent but you could you could just as easily fuck it up and be 20 percent worse and you even hear it like at the top level you hear people being like oh i just didn't do the peak week stuff right yeah it's just it's madness yeah and like regarding carb and up as you were saying it takes a period of time for the carbs and the foods you eat to actually be digested and assimilated and become glycogen within the muscle cells. Not 10 minutes before you go on stage, it's no good booking, swallowing spoonfuls of honey or drinking honey out of, mm. or whatever. It's usually the day or two days before. And that's something that I'll do with clients, as you all know. We keep cheat meals or high carb days in throughout the whole period. We will see how your body responds to them. Every, every, every week, you'll see you look better the day after. Do you look worse the day after? Do you look better the day after the day after? And we can, if you've been, if you've looked better the day after your high carb day, every week throughout prep, why would that be any different the week before the show? So you'd be doing your refeed day the day before the show. It all depends on how the individual responds. Yeah, because you hear so many people, like so many bodybuilders, say it, the the afters are kind of the day after you're talking through, and they're like, "Geez, look out, look at ripped I am today. I wish I knew this beforehand." I was like, "How did you go, how did you go through twenty weeks of, pre- of prep and not realize that the day after yeah. having a meal you look better?" Yeah, just uh, successfully as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see as your body adapts how 
a pizza will affect you. Mm. You know, does it make you watery looking the next day because of all the sodium? Or mm. does the sodium in the calves get pulled inside the muscle cell and make you look really big and full the next day? Mm. These are all the little signs that you want to be looking for throughout the prep. That's a really interesting point, looking at the different things you're, you're focusing in on the whole way through. Just for like those of us, again, who have no real idea. When someone checks in, what are the main things you're looking at? Are you looking at weight? Are you looking at pictures, skin folds, how they're feeling? Or is it the combination of them all? Or one or two other things that you find to be really It's important? really a combination of them all. Um, I track weight, but I don't really base too much off weight. The visual is the main thing. I do use skin folds because that is something that's quantifiable. And it's more, I suppose, I, I like statistics and I like numbers. So I'd like to cross-correlate as well as your weight with skin folds and even tape measures. So I know that if someone has dropped four pounds this week, four pounds the week before, four pounds the week before, and they're already lean, I know their physique is starting to flatten out, that they're obviously pushing too hard. And the, the skin folds should kind of tell that story then as well. But uh, again, it's just a look that the skin folds are one of the one things that go off. It'd be uh, one of the, the more important tools to go along with the visual. And but like you said, I'll also talk to people about how are you feeling this week. If they've lost a substantial amount of weight, their performance in the gym could be gone, they could feel shit, their body will start showing that down. And if they're 10 weeks out, that's too soon for all these things to happen. You know, or I might give me a sign, okay, right, you've been pushing too hard. Instead of one refeed day this week, have two refeed days, or cut back in cardio for a few days, or we'll we'll manage some of the variables to some degree. It's also the benefit, I suppose, of having that longer prep as well, where if you're ahead of the clock, you have some time to kind of lean back and be like, right, we can take it easy now. We don't want you peaking too soon. We have wiggle room again. I'm sure we've done it actually, where you've done double refeed days to see how the body responds. Does it oh, make we you... have. Yeah, <laughs> you actually have a really good metabolism. Um, so we say, right, we'll experiment. We're ahead, of the, we're ahead of the curve. So let's see if two high carb days will make you look shit or make you look better or somewhere in between. And we can just use that as just another tool, I suppose, to learn how your body responds. Just to change tack slightly in terms of, like, like, when I first met Shane, I just couldn't get over, like, how big his back and quads were. I was like, how was how a person like this? How do, how do you have that much muscle? Like you're... <laughs> Brian's going to show you his back and quads now, and you're going to be blown away. <laughs> like, like, Shane's legs were bigger than my torso. I was like, how are you so big? So straight away, once we, like, you know, broke the ice of, like, so uh, what do you work as your day job? Then straight in, what exercise do you do for your back? But I asked Shane, anyways, like, uh, rows and pull-ups. Yeah, but like, what else are? How do, how do you how do you change them up? Or like, what, what kind of advanced stuff do you do? No, I, I just do rows and pull-ups like twice a week, and that's it. <laughs> was it that's all. So like, when it comes to building muscle mass, is it just a case of two or three key exercises? Focus on doing well, do them often, and slowly progress them over time. And how long does it take before you start potentially adding in some of the kind of more advanced techniques for for hypertrophy? I like to work off the basics for everyone. Then for variation and to stave off boredom, I'll throw some things in for every now and again. But it's not to get to the more advanced stages that you need to really veer off. But again, it, it's more so for stopping people getting bored doing the same shit all the time. Is why, like, if I give someone a split and they're saying I train everything twice a week, for example, I give them two rotations for back say. So they'll have back day one, back day two. The next week to go one and two. So they're not doing the same back workout all the time. Could be just a different variation of a row. You might do a pull down this time and a pull up the next time. So there's nothing specifically magic about the exercises. It's just variation to keep it interesting. Regarding Shane, his back is just a genetically good body part. And obviously he's worked hard on it as well. (laughs) Thank you. It's something I've noticed as well. Anytime I've made like, and I've made minimal gains, but anytime I've, I've gotten a bit stronger or put on a bit of muscle, it's purely by following the exact same thing over a period of time and keeping like a little bit of track of, okay, last week, say squatting, I did 100 for three sets of five. This week, I'm going to do 100 for three sets of six. And you slowly add that little bit each week. And it's doing that consistently wakes, makes way more of a difference than doing drop sets or doing i remember shane like you tell me one about doing rest pause sets or adding chains and bands or anything like that it's just been really really consistent over the long period of time 
that's it. Like, watch it. You hit the nail on the head there. Progressive overload. Like, that is the key to improving any parameter of fitness. You progressively do a little bit more to force the adaptive response from the body. You apply the stimulus that causes adaptation, and progressively overloading is the way to do it. That's it's as simple as that. Now, obviously, there's other tools to it as well, but from the most basic standpoint, that's all there is to it. And those advanced techniques techniques are more like mental breaks to feel like, oh, I'm getting a massive stimulus from this for a few weeks. Now I'll go back to the basics again. To a degree, yes. But they can also add another way of, once you've kind of outgrown the basic three sets of 10 or whatever, and progressively trying to overload it. Like you can't progress every single week. It gives you just another way to stimulate a growth response. Obviously, you have your, the two main ways of uh, inducing hypertrophy. You have um, like your myofibrillar hypertrophy with regards to like heavy loading, heavy mechanical loading. And then you have your pumpy stuff, which is more kind of sarcoplasmic um, hypertrophy. Um, so you have, you have two different mechanisms of action. Which one is better? I don't know. I'm sure different studies have shown different things. But I try to incorporate both to get the more rounded way of kind of adding adding muscle just like at a really basic level one is where you have an increase in muscle fibers the other is where the muscle fibers themselves get larger is it yeah well yes and no like both will increase the size of the fibers um that's why fortunately where you where you get more fibers is, is uh, it's hyperplasia um so that happens also but both mechanisms of the heavy loading and the lighter pumpy stuff they will both increase the size of the fibers just under different mechanisms. Plus the, the heavier loading can lead to more just kind of general fatigue too. That's just a little bit hard to recover from. You're probably yeah, not going to do it. There's a CNS recovery then as well. And like if you're ego driven like most males, you want to lift some heavy shit. You know, for me, I'd rather get under a squat rack and a squat bar and bang out a set of six to eight if my knees let me then go in and do set to 20. But when it comes to other exercises, you want to feel that pump. So you might go into a high rep set. Like a lot of the balls at the moment, and it's something that I would do myself, you have your heavy loading set, then you have your back off set. So you might do a set, your first set could be six to eight reps. Your second set could be 12 to 15 reps. So you're hitting hypertrophy from both different mechanisms of action. Yeah, we, we've talked about similar here that maybe your your first two exercises in the gym, your, your squat and your RDL might be sets of four to six and then your back off stuff, maybe single leg, leg press, stuff like that. You're All going for your higher reps. Tr- yeah, tr- yeah, throughout your session, you're just dropping the load, increasing the reps, particularly as fatigue would generally be going up throughout a session as well. Yeah, exactly. You have to, like, there's an accumulation of fatigue, um, which in, in, in itself can induce a hypertrophy response. So there's so many different mechanisms, and this is where I suppose the nerdy stuff of studying the science comes in, which a lot of people don't do, but obviously that's what we do. And then I'm trying to translate that into lay terms for people. Like most people, I say, this doesn't matter why this works. You pay me, unless you want to understand it, just do what I tell you and we're good to go. And just some of the some of the things you've learned from hypertrophy in a in a very hypertrophy based sport. What are some things because like you did the S and C course, you work a tiny bit with athletes. What are some things that would have been predominantly viewed as bodybuilding styles or techniques that you would bring across to to more athlete based stuff to benefit their on field performance? Um, if they're looking to increase, obviously size and strength, they don't always come hand in hand, but. If, like, let's say a soccer player, he needs to get stronger on the ball. Now, you also you increase baseline strength, but you want to add a bit of muscle tissue because that will make them a bit heavier and a bit more robust. And it could be the extra weight they're carrying that makes them stronger, not they're actually stronger. You know what I mean? So you could increase your squat, but if you put on four pounds of muscle, you may get a better, you may be stronger on fields than having a stronger deadlift or squat. It's also being mindful there of where on the body that four pounds is going on. Like chest and shoulders, largely irrelevant. But putting on four pounds spread evenly through quads, hamstrings, glutes and calves. That's got, like, it's going to lower their centre of body mass anyway, which is a big help to a soccer player. Yeah. And I think with straight love comes down to core 
strength and core development. And you can do all your planks and all your rotational stuff. But if you can increase your basic deadlift and squat, the knock-on effect of core stability, I think it's a secondary response. But I think that has a more direct impact to strength on field than doing a lot of specific core exercises. The heavy compounds, if you can load the core with 200 kilos on your back, you know, it's going to be a lot more effective than doing a couple of planks in the, re- in the real world. So flipping that then on the other side, I suppose strength training for your bodybuilding athletes. Like you, when I first met you, you were, you were putting up powerlifting numbers easy. Like you were incredibly strong. But at the same time, I know people, other bodybuilders who, who wouldn't necessarily lift very heavy weights at all. They're just obviously yeah. slow, tempo-controlled hypertrophy stuff. Like, they'd never waver from their 12, 10 to 12 kind of reps. Do you think yeah. there's benefit to both, or it's just which kind of style of training you prefer? Oh, that goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about the different um, hypertrophic responses to different types of rep ranges. So, yes, both are beneficial. And I said, a lot of it comes down to ego as well. I just mm-hmm. like being strong as fuck. I know a lot of lads do. But it's then, I'm guessing then as you got older, it's harder and harder to, to hit those numbers. Yeah. Whoa, 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 less than the old. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the knees and stuff can't take it as well as they used to. Like my days, like I think my max squat was 270. That's kilos now, not pounds, isn't it? Just like to blow everyone at home away. That's gym members who just hopped on the bar. <laughs> um, you know, I would be afraid to put 200 kilos on me back now. Not because I couldn't squat it strength-wise, mm. I just think my knees would collapse. I would be, I would be on a walk because of knee pain for about a week. Did you ever hop into a uh, sorry a powerlifting competition? Funny, um, I was about it. You're very close. <laughs> very close, and then I think I tore my pec. Important enough for one of the three main powerlifting lifts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then I kind of knocked that idea. Plus, when mm. when I tore my pec. I was focusing a lot on lower body stuff then, and then the banjo on my knees and my hips then as well. So I was like, apparently, forget about it. Uh, I knew I, I could, strength wise, I could match most of my friends who are powerlifters. And I wanted it just to be a prick. I said, I'm not even a powerlifter, I'm a competition. Hmm. You know, they were dedicating their lives to it. But um, the injuries put pay for that. What were some of your numbers then, just to blow people at home away? I've squatted 270 for a single, I've pulled a uh, 300 kilo deadlift off the floor. Now that was with lifting straps, okay? Ah, oh, cheater. Done, yeah, I've done 285 <laughs> without straps. Bench, 160 maybe, which comparatively wasn't near as good as the other two lifts. That's what was keeping you kind of back from the powerlifting, wasn't it? Get that was there, you were like, nah, I have the other two easy, it's just that one. Yeah, like the guys who I'd be going up against would be pressing 200 kilos for fun. You know, but I'd be matching them and probably beating them on deadlifts and squats. But that was, like, they're hugely impressive max numbers. But what, what impressed me most was, like, your hypertrophy work then was, like, I saw you do sets of, I think it was 18 at one stage of 200 kilos on your back of the squats. And it was just, it was so easy with that just mammoth weight. And it was just, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, I think uh, I did 20 reps on 190, which would have been double my body weight at the time. Mm. I was doing all these lifts in and around 95 to 98 kilos. Mm. So that's why pound for pound, I would have been up there anyway. Yeah. Mm. Before I got old and injured. Just Shane was telling us, you have a supplement company, Brian, you do. If you want to plug away on this. I get abused every time I do a podcast and because <laughs> I never bring it up, I never mention it because, because I don't really care. To all. Now, the stuff is top quality. Anyone who's tried it, we have a pre-workout um, high to charge. It's a small bit of caffeine and the rest are more kind of neurons rather than CNS stimulants. So for anyone that has anxiety or doesn't like being wired, it's really good, which was part of why I helped design it because I can't do too well on stimulants. Um, the whey protein, it's you know, basically probably on par with the makes of ON, but a lot more affordable because there's no big marketing. It's just me getting it produced, labeling it up and and then we have an EAA then as well, which is the whole the full nine essential aminos. That's pretty much the range. I haven't extended it, I haven't grown it because I, I bought it on a whim. Thought this could be great. And I was like, oh, I actually have to do work to try and promote it. So I never really did. But yeah, amino what's, smart and it's still there. What's the name of it? I remember when you first got it. 
you said like oh this is great i'll just be able to like produce any of the supplements that i personally like and you're saying the guy sold it before he's like you know you actually have to sell supplements to other people like it's not just your own factory where you make your own supplements you're like oh oh yeah yeah, <laughs> <Fuck that. laughs> yeah. i produce all these kind of cyclic dextrins and this yeah. that, you, know? <laughs> you have to buy a minimum order and it's only so much that i use yeah. and now <laughs> i'm so like yeah i don't have that money to invest i spent all my money buying the company <clears throat> No, Brian, that's been unreal. Like, I've just been, because it's so different to me, I really want to dig in and find out all this stuff. Now it's great to have Shane and all his experience here as well to, like, dig in a bit deeper and give a few kind of personal reflections on stuff. So thanks a million for coming on. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Oh. Get you on next when you're powerlifting for your, or prepping for your next powerlifting. <laughs> I'll be doing the over 50s at this rate. <laughs> Did you ever look into powerlifting with, the, with any of the gear or anything like that? Or was uh, what do you mean? The the bench oh, short or the like straps. That was it. Like I drop up in a Liverpool jersey and a pair of tracksuit bottoms mm-hmm. and I squat and a deadlift. And my plan was to go into a meet and do that exact same thing. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, obviously, my I drop. But apparently, I wouldn't have been allowed. I would have had to get the seam lift the whole lot. But yeah, I used to just go in and lift because I enjoyed lifting and I liked getting strong. So mm-hmm. I suppose I got strong by virtue of just trying to do a little bit more each week. I never did a powerlifting or strength block per se. Mm. I just naturally got stronger and it just got to a point where I was quite strong. Ego driven. It's the best driver. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, when it comes to feder, you've talked about bodybuilding federations, there's loads of them. Back a few years ago when there was, I think only three uh, powerlifting federations I think the IDFPA when you did your first meet you didn't have to wear a single so you could have done it in the Liverpool jersey I, I did one with a, a New Zealand and all blacks jersey on and a pair of like random shorts or something like that ah brilliant exactly yeah no lovely Brian thanks a million and um no thank you good man yourself that was super, 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 super. talk to you